As we come to the last Sunday in Advent, during these past few weeks, we have been considering uh, what it is to give gifts during this season. We began realizing that the gift that, gifts that we give uh, are not in any way something that earn us any favor or buy us any privilege. In fact, we're not even the ones that are taking the initiatives when we consider what gifts we may give to the Lord. So we began this series, we realized that Christmas is God's giving a gift to us in Jesus. And Jesus is the gift that continues to give. While Jesus himself is a gift to us, we would be able to see what God is like. We would understand more of what God expects because Jesus is the embodiment of God, the fullness of God. Jesus also is our Redeemer. And he has reconciled us to God. And it's important that we realize that the time that Jesus was given to us, Paul tells us we were alienated from God. We were God's enemies. And the love of God and the glory of the gospel is that while we were his enemies, Jesus came and gave himself that we might belong, be reconciled to God. Any gifts that we choose to give to the Lord are gifts in response to a love that we cannot fully comprehend, but that we can continue to grow in our understanding and depth of. And so for the past few weeks, we've been considering what does it mean to give gifts to Jesus, give gifts to Jesus for his birthday in response to the grace that's been given to us, to earn us nothing, but to be able to express gratitude and thankfulness for the gift that God has given to us for Christmas in Jesus. Let's go to God's word again as we read the passage in Matthew that we have been using to guide us in our gift giving. Matthew chapter 2, beginning our reading in verse 1, continuing through verse 12, although verse 11 is our key. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, 
they departed to their own country by another way. The word of the Lord endures forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, as we come now to give consideration to your word, I pray that as you have promised, your word does not come back void or empty. You will accomplish your intended purpose. Help us to understand your heart, your glory. Help us to understand your gift to us in Jesus. Help us to understand your promise. Help us to believe. For Lord, we may learn and and know, but unless you give us the gift of faith, unless you strengthen us in our faith, our efforts prove fruitless. So Lord, we commit ourselves now to hear your voice, to gain insight, to gain understanding, true understanding. Not only that with the mind, but without that with the heart and our very soul. Lord, feed us, strengthen us, shape us, make us more like Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we've been considering different gifts during the season and the difficulty of giving gifts, in particular, it seems that women find it difficult to find gifts for men. I read a columnist, a, a female columnist. She wrote an article lamenting the frustration she has in buying gifts for her husband and her father. She said to her, it seemed to be an impossible task because men either want things that are so simple, like socks, or so unreasonable and expensive, like speedboats, somewhere, and there was nothing in between. And she says, look, it's Sports Illustrated. All you can pick out are convertibles and Rolex watches, or smoking patches and batteries. There's nothing in between. Another woman quoted in her article, she spoke about the difficulty of getting a gift for her fly fisherman husband. She says she's given up buying anything for his fishing, any fly, whatever fly, whatever she was to buy, inevitably it is the wrong thing. And so the two women got together, and not only to pen the article, but they actually got together with a marketing expert who did market research and came up with these suggestions and says, these are the things that you need to get men. Number one was scuba diving lessons. Number two was Three Stooges movies. (laughs) And number three was pretty much anything with moving parts. (laughs) Getting the right gift for some men is is very difficult at times, but somehow it, it seems to get done. But the driving question for our season, the question that we've been asking for these past several weeks is this, what is it that you get the Son of Man, the Redeemer Christ, But unlike shopping for some men, you don't need to pull your hair out in frustration. You can pull out your Bible and get inspiration. And the inspiration that we've been getting for these past few weeks has come from Matthew chapter 2, where we find the gifts of the Magi, the gifts that were presented by the wise men, however many of them there were, presented to Jesus as an appropriate expression of gratitude, awe, worship by those who were seeking. We've also seen that these three gifts are not just important because of their value, and value particularly in their culture, 
But these three are also symbolic. These three things also represent and testify to who this child that was born is. They all reflect the three offices that Scripture teaches that the Messiah would possess. There is gold for the mighty king. There is incense for the ministering priest. And then that leaves us with myrrh for a prophet who would be martyred. Now, as we look in the scripture, we see myrrh is mentioned not a lot. Myrrh itself is an interesting subject, uh, substance in, in some ways. It grows on a bush-like tree that's fairly common in the Middle East. And from that bush-like tree is extracted a, a rosin. And the rosin, when it is crushed or it is grounded up, it emits a fragrant odor. It's a pretty smell. It's, it's something that was used as a popular perfume in the day. And so myrrh was a very common element, both as a, a perfume and, and for other things that you would want to uh, change the odor. Now, myrrh is mentioned four times in the New Testament. The, the first time is here in Matthew 2 where we see the, the gift of the Magi uh, coming and bringing to the newborn Christ. In Mark 15, we see it also listed, and it's given to Jesus on the cross as a painkiller. At least it's intended. Jesus refused to take it. It was, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh, uh, and so that would allow the continuation of, of the process. Or in one sense, perhaps it was the only act of, of mercy, depending on what scholars differ on that. But it was offered to Jesus on the cross, and, and he had refused it. We also see that it was listed in John 19 when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus went to prepare Jesus' body for its burial. Two of those three times we find very clearly are linked to the crushing or the death of Jesus. One on the cross, one after his death had taken place. And I would suggest to you really all three accounts would reflect that because Christmas, while we recognize Jesus being born, the purpose of Jesus being born was in order to die that you and I could be set free, that we could be right with God. Myrrh is a substance that's offered. It always reflects crushing and death. There is a fourth time that myrrh is mentioned in the New Testament. It is not as easy to pick out. If you were to go to your concordance, you probably would not find it there, but nevertheless, it is there. And that's in Revelation chapter 2. It is the letter to the church in Smyrna. It is the, the second in the, of the seven postcards that the Apostle John, or that Jesus had given to the Apostle John to give to the churches in Asia Minor. But the word Smyrna, the town Smyrna, literally means place of myrrh. The city of Smyrna was one of two planned communities in antiquity. It was planned by Alexander the Great. He wanted it to be a wonderful resort and a, a place to live. And so it was set on a, a bluff overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. And he planned it out into great detail. It was where anyone who had money would come to, to live or to retire. And, and it was something, it was, uh, it was quite, a, quite a show place. And Alexander named it uh, Smyrna to reflect beauty, the beautiful smell of the fragrance of myrrh. Now, 
the city of Wallet was a place that people would come and, and wanted to live and uh, a place to retire to, a, a beautiful city. Nevertheless, it wasn't very long or, or in generations after Alexander uh, had planted the city, the city became the center of persecution, particularly in persecution of Christians. And it was during that time of persecution that Jesus sent a message to the church, and that was in Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to ask that you turn there with me this morning because we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at that because I believe that it will help us to understand what it is to give a gift of myrrh through the instructions that Jesus gave to the people there. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. This is what Jesus has to say. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and last, he who died and came to life. I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are part of a synagogue, the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is an important message for us, perhaps seeming a little odd for a Christmas celebration. But it is pertinent as we consider how we might give gifts to Jesus for his birthday. It helps us to understand why our committing to give ourselves or giving to Jesus a gift of myrrh is an appropriate and an awesome gift that we can give to him. And it also explains to us as we consider it how we might actually give that gift. The first thing I want you to notice from this particular text is what I will just call the realization Jesus says in this passage, I know. He begins, he says, look, I know your poverty. In other words, they were materially deficient. They were materially impoverished. Although Jesus says, but in reality, you're rich. They didn't have a lot, but they had everything. Jesus says, look, I know, I know the condition. I know, I know your finances. And then Jesus says, I know the slander and suffering that you have endured. Slanders from Jews who are not Jews but are part of the synagogue of Satan. And so we, we don't know. And again, scholars debate as to whether they were people who claimed to be Jews in order to infiltrate or whether they were unbelievers who were just simply opposed to those who worshipped and followed Jesus and they declared themselves to be Jews to create tension. With Jesus, or if they were just people that... Jesus was using the imagery of the synagogue and saying, look, they may claim to be a part of us, but by the fact that they are opposing God, they belong to their father, the devil, and, and so anytime they gather, it's a, it's a gathering, a synagogue of, of Satan. We're not sure of the details there, but one of the things that we do know is that Jesus says, look, I know, I know what they're saying about you. I know that they're saying things about you. I know they're saying things that are untrue about you simply because... You believe in me. Jesus says, I know. 
I know your circumstances, and I know what you're having to go through. The Greek word here for suffering or for trials or tribulations is, is thlipsis. You know, the Greek is not something that probably comes up in your everyday conversations, but it's important to not to remember the word, but to recognize that there's something very specific that's being said here. Because thlipsis is not just trials of some sort or tribulations or difficulty, but the word thlipsis means crushing pressure. And so when Jesus is writing to them and he's saying, look, I, I know the crushing pressure that you are feeling, that you are experiencing, that you are under, are, are going. And I know the crushing pleasure, uh, pressure, the, the thlipsis that you are going to, that you are about to go through. Here's a letter that's coming to these people and saying, look, it's not just that I know what you are experiencing, but I know what you're about to experience. In one sense, it's not a very comforting letter. If you're going through trials and difficulties, perhaps there's something going on with your health, then the last thing you want is to find out, oh, and by the way, there's going to be a letter from the IRS coming soon. You, you, you don't want to know something else is coming. But the primary thing here is Jesus is saying, look, I know. I know what you have endured. I know what you will go through. And Jesus here says that you're going to go through 10 days. It's going to be coming soon. There's going to be 10 days of suffering. And in fact, the People who lived in Smyrna, the believers that lived in Smyrna did go through uh, 10 days of, or, or really it was 10 waves of persecution. Soon after they would have received this letter, or, or not long after they received this letter, historians claim that there was a period during which about 6 million people, particularly most of whom were Christians, were killed. 6 million is a horrendous number to think about at all. But to put in the cultural context or the population of the day, that would be, if that was today, that would be equivalent to the population of the United States. Wiped out mostly because of persecution of faith. Historians say it was the most incredible time in history where people were, uh, were, uh, were punished, martyred. And Jesus says, I know. I know what you're going through. I know what is yet to come. I know what happened to their pastor on February 23rd, A.D. 155. The pastor of the church in Smyrna was a man named Polycarp. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. John had actually discipled him. He was a friend and the early church fathers, Tertullian and Irenaeus, said that it was John who actually installed Polycarp to be the pastor in Smyrna. And at this point, Polycarp was 86 years old. He was wise. He was well-informed. And he was a godly man. And as persecution began to increase, a number of Christians came to Polycarp and told them, look, you need to go into hiding. We need you. We need your teaching. We need to, we need to learn from you. You need to get out of sight. And so he agreed and he, he fled, particularly as word came that they were searching Polycarp in particular. And so he went into hiding only to be sold out by one of the servants, and so the authorities found out where he was staying, but Polycarp got word that they had gotten word, and so he moved to another farm. And the first night that he was in that, in that farmhouse, having escaped yet again, uh, 
he had a dream. And in his dream, his pillow had erupted into flames. And so in the morning, he woke and he told his assistant, Today, I will give my life in martyrdom. The Lord's will be done. When they came to get him, to arrest him, um, and he saw them coming, perhaps through a window, Polycarp went down the stairs, and when the soldiers came into the house, he offered them something to eat and to drink, and then told his servants, get them whatever they want. And then he asked if he could have an hour to just simply go and pray, and I guess it was the, the food on the table. The soldiers said, sure, go ahead. As they ate, he went up and he prayed, and after his hour, he, he came down, and he surrendered himself to the authorities who took him. The next day, they took him to the center of town where there was a stake for the very purpose of burning Christians. They began to tie him to that stake and then nail him in place. And Polycarp said to the soldiers who were tying him up at that point, he said, I'm not worthy to be bound to a tree. Just leave me alone. I'll just stand here. And so this 86-year-old man just stood there with his back against the stake as the soldiers piled the wood and then lit the fire. An amazing thing happened, though. As soon as the fire was lit, a huge gust of wind came and just blew the flames out. And all the people, including the soldiers, were, they were kind of blown away. And so they, they, relit the, they relit the fire. Actually, before that, some of the soldiers were, were saying look, you're an old man and you've never done any harm, just declare your allegiance to Caesar and everything will be fine. And Polycarp said, for 86 years my Lord has been faithful to me. Shall I now become faithless to him? Another soldier just said, just swear by Caesar. Polycarp says, look, I'm a Christian. If you want to know the doctrines of the Christian faith, just name a time and a place and come listen. And the proconsul finally tired of this discussion. He said, look, I have the authority and I'm going to, I have the authority to have you consumed by flames. And Polycarp said to him, you warn me about flames that burn for a time, but you are in danger of flames that will last for eternity. And so they lit the fire again. Witnesses said that at the time that the fire was, it reached its peak, there was something amazing. Is that it appeared that the flames were all around and surrounding, but none of them were anywhere near Polycarp on the stake at first. And yet there was something that was taking place. The flames must have been at least near him. While he was not burning, the flames were going much longer than would normally take for somebody to be in agony. All of the witnesses, believers and unbelievers alike, said that they began to smell something, and it wasn't that of burning flesh. It was a sweet aroma. Something like myrrh. Finally, another soldier who was just tired of this whole thing, he, he took his dagger and he reached through the fire and he slashed Polycarp in the neck. He must have hit an artery because the blood supposedly just began to gush out and the blood extinguished the flames. 
Polycarp, weakened because of the blood loss, gave a very short and powerful message about how the blood extinguishes the eternal flames for anyone who belongs in Jesus Christ. And then he died. The people were stunned as they watched this 86-year-old man, blood squirting, obviously dying, but refusing to give in, refusing to curse God, refusing even to become angry with those who were killing him. The Lord says to you and me, I know what you're going through. I know the crushing pressures that you are feeling in your life. He says to the man who has no hope of promotion because he's unwilling to compromise, I understand, I know. To the teenage girl who had her boyfriend dump her because she's unwilling to compromise, Jesus says, I know. I know what you're going through. The things that people are saying about you that are just not true, Jesus says, I know. But you and I have an opportunity to give a gift of myrrh. If you and I, like Polycarp, will simply say, I will take a stand. The Lord says, I know. He says, one, I've, I've allowed these things to take place in your life right now. But you've not gotten bitter and you've not walked away. And your life is emitting a beautiful fragrance through the flames that you feel are around you. When we read Jesus' words to these people, we realize that there is a realization. Jesus realizes what is going on in the life of his, lives of his people. But even, even more than that, there is an identification. It's not just that Jesus knows, but Jesus says really at the very beginning in verse 8 here, he says, I was dead, but now I'm alive. And so when Jesus says, I realize what's going on, Jesus isn't just saying, look, I, I know. He's saying, I understand. I've been there. I've experienced it all. Because the implications of that phrase, as he's introducing, yet again, is, is common throughout all of the scripture, before any instruction, before anything is being stated, Jesus is introducing us first. He's declaring the gospel, in, at least in representative language. He's saying, look, send this letter to the churches. And this is from the one who died and who is alive again. And it's a picture of saying, the one who died, why did he die? Well, he died because of your sin and because of my sin, because of the sin of the world. Someone had to come, and he had to come. He volunteered to come to lay down his life to gain satisfaction for the penalty that we had incurred. He came and he died, and he's declaring the one who died, he's reminding us of why he died out of his love. And yet he is also one who rose, and so he's alive again. We see a beautiful picture of the gospel in those very simple words. Jesus says, look, I know I was despised. I was rejected. I was misunderstood. I was abandoned. I was spat on. I was called all sorts of names, tortured and killed, even killed on the cross. And all my friends abandoned me. Even my father turned from me. 
I was alone and God forsaken. Jesus says, so whatever you're going through, it's not only that I know, but I understand. I've been there. And I've absorbed all of your sin and all of the punishment that you deserve for it. I could have freed myself, but I didn't. I know what it is to suffer. I know what it is to hang in there. I know what it is to endure. And by the fact that he says, I am alive, he says, I know what it is to overcome. It is not just that Jesus is aware of what's going on, and it's important that we understand that. Jesus realizes, but Jesus identifies because he has been in the same place that we have been. Which no doubt will lead some of us to ask the question, well, if he understands, if he knows and he understands, why doesn't he do something about it? Why does he allow me to go through all the things that I'm going through if he knows and he identifies with it? Why doesn't he just stop it all? The answer is because it's not only a matter of his realization and his identification. For a lack of a better word, it's because there is an inspiration or better yet is there's a sanctification that he is at work and has promised that he who began it will see through to the end. See, Jesus said that I, am, I, was, I was dead, but now I'm alive. But he did say I'm alive. I am alive. And that is an important perspective for us to continue to remember. Hebrews 12.2 reminds us of this. He tells us an invitation. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, he was willing to endure not because there was any pleasure in what he was going through, but because of the joy that would come through in the end. It wasn't easy for Jesus. It wasn't easy for Polycarp. It wasn't easy for the six million people killed for their faith. They were all crushed like myrrh. But Jesus says, now I'm alive. And those who are in me are also alive. The fact that the writer of Hebrews is telling us that for the joy, not that he experienced, but for the joy that was set before him, that he was willing to endure even the shame of the cross, the pain of the cross, the penalty of the cross. There's no joy in the cross, but because of the joy that was at the other side. It is a promise of the gospel. That God makes not only the joy for Jesus, but to all who are in Jesus, is there is joy on the other side for those who are willing to endure. But in the process, there is a fragrance that arises from the lives of those people who are following Jesus, even in the midst of their own suffering. It's a fragrance that is pleasing to God. And it's a fragrance that is pleasing to men, both believers and unbelievers alike. The people in Polycarp's day that were said that they testified to smelling this aroma when they should have been smelling flesh were smelling the sweetness of a perfume. It was believer and unbeliever alike that smelled that smell, that found the smell pleasing. 
And this morning, you have an opportunity to give a gift to Jesus, a gift of myrrh. For those of you who are going through crushing pressures, you have an opportunity that others do not to be able to stand firm and to say, Lord, whatever it takes, if my life will bring you pleasure, I give my life to you, for you have given your life for me. For those who are not presently going through difficulties, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you will. But you have an opportunity to give a gift to Jesus today. Maybe you'll call it a layaway. This is what I will give to you, even when those times come upon me. It is something that will be sweet to the Lord, not because he enjoys your suffering, but because, one, he sees your faith, and two, he sees your faith growing. Because it's not easy to continue to cling to faith when everything else seems to be falling apart. Everybody around you is telling you, you're a fool. You need to do this. And it's not just blatant rejection of Christ that our people are calling you to do. It's not even what Polycarp was being asked to do necessarily, to claim another God. It's simply to take matters into your own hands, become wise in your own eyes. Very subtle. And you focus your attention on the suffering, not fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It's simply a diminished worship. You go through the motions, but you don't feel any joy in the presence of God because you're so wrapped up in what is going on in your own life. And your faith begins to atrophy. But when you tell Jesus, I will give you the gift of myrrh, I will turn my eyes to you, and if pressures feel crushing, I'll turn my eyes to you all the more. I may not understand why or what's going on, but I will turn my life to you if it brings you pleasure. Jesus takes no pleasure in the suffering, but he tells us all that that is a promise of this world in its present state until God has come and fulfilled his promise to deliver us all. We all will experience hardships and trials, some for our faith, some that are common to all people. But there is something that's in it for us as well, particularly if we want to give Jesus a gift, a gift of myrrh or just simply giving him a gift. Because one of the things that I've come to understand is this, is that there is no Christ-likeness. We cannot grow to be like Jesus without experiencing suffering in our lives. If Jesus was a man familiar with suffering, a man of sorrows, how can we say that we are becoming like him if we want to be like him in every way except to experience what the scripture declares him to be? A man familiar with suffering, a man of sorrows. But in the suffering, we have some understanding of what Jesus endured. Pain and yet remaining faithful. The difference is he died for, he suffered for our sin. Sometimes we suffer for our sin. Sometimes we suffer because of just this life. But not only does Jesus gain pleasure in the fact that your faith is evident and grows stronger when you keep your eyes fixed on him, even in the midst of crushing pressures. He takes joy in you and me becoming what we are to be more like him when we stand firm even in the midst of difficulty so I want to encourage you today and this 
Christmas season with only a, a few days left as you consider the last gift that you may give to Jesus. Giving to him a gift of gold in response to all that he has given to you is a wonderful gesture and it's important, meaning you give to him your best in every aspect that you commit yourself to living for the glory of God. To give him a gift of incense, your prayer and your holiness or your, your purity, commitment to walking with Jesus and communicating with Jesus is an appropriate gift. But this is a practical gift as well because we will experience difficulty that you and I can say, Lord, let me give you this beautiful aroma of my life. And at the risk of people groaning at the bad pun, giving Jesus myrrh for Christmas is one way of making it a Merry Christmas. Let me pray. Father, as we come to your word, again, I thank you for not leaving us to our own imaginations about what would please you or what you are like. But you have revealed yourself in many ways throughout your word, not just a list of promises that were fulfilled, but interactions with man, interactions with men who have constantly fallen away as we do. And time and again, your grace is evident, even as your discipline is shown in the scriptures, your love and your grace is evident, for you have sustained the people that you have called to yourself. And you have promised to continue the work to make us what we are intended to be. As we've considered this, this word that you've given to us through the people in the church of Smyrna, I pray that you would give us insight into our own attitudes to suffering. Some of us are aware that we shrink back and, and due to fear, of it, we, we try to minimize it, which in one sense may be understandable and, and, and maybe even appropriate. In another sense, Lord, help us to understand that we need not fear it, because even while we're experiencing it, it is not your condemnation or rejection of us. Bring us comfort even in the midst of the crushing pressures. For those of us who make light of it, as if there's something spiritual in this, Lord, help us to learn to be honest. Help us to realize that as we are, as we are broken and as we are crushed, but remain faithful. Our lives do emit a fragrance that is pleasing to you as worship and pleasing to the world word evangelism. Lord, while I do not invite suffering and do not delight in suffering and don't want any more suffering, nevertheless, whatever your will, may my life bring pleasure to you. I pray in Jesus.
Amen.